0: Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world, one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So today, let's jump into the message. Today we see Paul at his most vulnerable. He's going to talk about his own struggles with sin. And remember, Paul is this... This, the high, one of the highest-educated Pharisees of his day, he thoroughly knows the Bible. He lived such a focused life on every, trying to keep every law, and now for a number of years, he has been this incredible leader of the early church, planting churches all over the Middle East and 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 Italy, all over those places. He still. But he still openly has this war going on inside of him. And we're going to see that as we start in Romans 7 verse 14. It says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, Paul's saying. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do. But what I hate, that I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Isn't that true? We all know there's rules out there that we don't live up to. And when we don't live up to them and we know we haven't lived up to them, we're basically saying, yeah, that's good, right? As it is, it is no longer I myself who did it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep Doing And you can hear the frustration in his voice. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, pretty vulnerable, right? Does this remind you of the classic book Robert by Robert Louis Stevenson, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Now, some of our kids had to read it in high school. <clears throat> Pardon me. Even if you haven't read it, most of us know the basics of the story. What... What you may not know is that the author grew up in a Christian conservative home, and Paul's struggle in Romans 7 is actually believed to have been some of the inspiration behind the story. So Dr. Jekyll, if just to get, kind of give the basics of the story, had a strong desire to be a respectable member of society yet he had the other side of him that consistently had more carnal desires, they called it. He tired. He he was tired of this continuous inner war going on in him, and he was a brilliant chemist, so he invented this potion in the story that would separate the two personas, because he theorized that he could become two people. His evil self could be released and not weighed down by his conscience and guilt, and his noble self could live a respectable life. So when he took the, uh, the potion, Dr. Jekyll became Edward Hyde. They got the last name derived from the word hidden or hideous. In his book, Stevenson said you could tell from Hyde's outward appearance that he was different. His face was inhuman, not having an ounce of mercy. Dr. Jekyll lived a double life, two persons living in one body, with the potion turning Hyde out who indulged himself in every sinful desire and then turning it back into Mr. Dr. Jekyll. The problem came because they shared a memory. However, Jekyll would console himself that he really wasn't doing these terrible things. It was really Hyde. And Dr. Jekyll tried to make up for Hyde's crimes by doing lots of good deeds. As time went on, you see in the story that Hyde gets stronger and stronger, and Jekyll starts saying things like, My new power tempted me until I fell into slavery. Dr. Jekyll realized that his evil self was far more evil than he thought, eventually leaving Jekyll no longer being able to control Hyde, who became more and more depraved and reckless in his behavior, one day mercilessly beating a man to death. At this point, Jekyll tried to put Hyde away forever, but ultimately could not. More and more, Hyde was like a caged animal clawing to get out of Jekyll, saying, I began to be tortured with throes and longings as Hyde's struggling after freedom. Finally, Jekyll couldn't push Hyde's memories down any longer. He started to savor all the sordid experiences, and he became transformed into Hyde. Jekyll's greatest fear came to be He could no longer control the monster that was within him. So he barricaded himself in a lab where he took his own life. Happy Sunday. I was hesitant to share this, but Stevenson's reiteration of Paul's struggle is kind of profound here, isn't it? I'm a slave to sin. I want to do good, but I keep doing evil instead. I want to do this, but I keep doing what I don't want to do. So questions, what parts of Dr. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde reflect the Christian view? Is Paul's view of human nature so bleak and pessimistic as Stevenson's recollection there, that there is good and evil in us, but we can never win, so we have to fight it all the time? Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. For the sake of time, let me summarize kind of the rest of chapter 7 and the whole big picture of chapter 7. It's basically saying that we have uh, two battles that we are in, one that we cannot win and one that we can win. Stevenson focused on the battle that we can't win. He effectively shows us how living a double life will not work. On our own, even when we we have no power in us to bring the depth of change needed. Now some of us can relate to the intense feelings of Jekyll knowing how sin can enslave us, how we pretend that we don't have a dark side and we just try to put on a good face and we try to cover it up. Now to clarify, this first battle that we can't win is before we chose to follow Jesus. Even then when we were under the law, now Paul is not saying that the law is bad again because the law helps reveal how sinful we are, right? We have this good measure and it's kind of like a full-length mirror showing us how very far far we fall short of God's good standards. So imagine having a full-length mirror that had an outline of your ideal build and weight, and every time you looked in the mirror, you saw the difference between what you really should be and what you are. Now, I know, you know, so you're looking in the mirror, and you kind of see, well, I got this, and I got to kind of move that up there, and maybe I need a little bit more here, and it's all in the wrong place, see? The law helps you see what you should be and where you actually are. Paul was saying his attempts to keep the law just made it worse. This is the war you can't win. Before choosing to follow Jesus, you have this internal war between your two selves. The part of you that bears the image of God in whose image you're created, and the part of you that's bent on being your own master. In the verses we read in the beginning, Paul was telling us of a second battle we experience after we become a Christian that we cannot lose. Let's begin reading again what Paul said. He says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. So he's talking about one piece of him there. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Paul's saying, now that I'm a Christian, I have two natures existing in me. There's this new me, the real me, the image-bearing part of me that has been rebirthed as a new creation saved by God and resurrected and empowered and breathed upon by the Holy Spirit, the part of me who wants to do what is right. And there is this other nature there as well. This old self, the one that doesn't want to do what is right and wants to only please myself. He goes on in verse 19, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Again, there's this war between the selves that happens before you follow Jesus, and there's this war between the selves that happens after you meet Jesus. The battle before, Jesus, before meeting Jesus is without hope. You're never going to win it. And Stevenson does a great job of showing the bleakness and hopelessness of this. However... The war after you meet Jesus, you cannot lose. It's not that everything becomes easy and peaceful, but you understand that you are in a different battle that you cannot lose. So Galatians 7 summarizes this in Romans 7 in one verse. It says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Paul describes it in Colossians this way. He says, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in knowledge in the image of its creator. See, there are two different selves. You have a new nature in Christ, and you have an old nature with its old strength and corruptions. You've got this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and if you give in and focus on that old nature, Mr. Hyde will strengthen and harm you. However, if you focus upon who the Holy Spirit is upon entering your life, and, have, and that you have this new self that desires to do what is right... We still continue to have the powerful sin in us, but that is not who we really are. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So Paul keeps coming back to this point through his writings. It's a really critical, central point to understanding how we live out this Christian faith and the transformation that God wants to give us. That we are new people. Our identity is totally changed. When we mess up, when we sin, we confess and we put our trust in believing God's promise to help us change because we are new people. Paul said it well in Romans 6. He said, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, we talked about this. Paul's not saying that we are dying to sin like it is a process. He said we should consider ourselves already dead. So, as much as you sin, you need to remember you are new in Christ. The Spirit of God is alive in you. You fight from a new identity. You believe that God is bringing life to you and will complete it fully one day. So you wrestle with life from a completely different perspective. You know our desire to sin is not tr- the true me anymore. That's the old me. That's not the me renewed the rebir- that's rebirth in Christ. So therefore, if you have a sinful habit and you keep falling back into it and then you feel bad and you beat yourself up and then you get better and then you fall back into it again, you can easily find yourself saying, nothing has changed. I can't win. Paul is saying, that's wrong. You are in a battle that you cannot lose. You may still struggle, but the ultimate outcome is determined. And as you continue to believe this more and more and let it affect your heart and your mind and your emotions more and more, sin will have less appeal and bring less satisfaction than it used to. And your behaviors are no longer the expression of your... those sinful behaviors then become no longer an expression of your true self, your real self. See, this overwhelming relief, there's overwhelming relief that we can have knowing that we cannot lose. It kinda of actually reminds me of a dark time in nineteen forty one. Uh the war was not going well, December seventh the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. When Winston Churchill heard about it, he called FDR, who said, We are all in the same boat now. And Churchill later wrote this in his memoir. He said, No American will think it wrong of me to proclaim that hearing the United States was on our side was the greatest joy to me. England would live. Britain would live. The rest of the war was simply the proper application of overwhelming force. And he says, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. The reality at the very moment when when he thought about that is, Hitler was still very much on the offensive. Things hadn't really changed that much. But Churchill's attitude turned from helpless to hopeless. And what Paul is saying is that's how we are to live. The Holy Spirit is the force that will ensure our victory. That means our darkest on our darkest days when we mess up royally, when we get discouraged, like why do I still struggle with self control? Why am I so still so arrogant? Why do I need to control everything? Why am I so jealous rather than loving? How then can we have hope that we cannot lose in the midst of that? And Paul says we need to move on to chapter eight. Now we believe the Bible is the greatest book ever written. Many scholars believe that Romans is the greatest book in the Bible. On top of that, Romans 8 is referred to many by many as the greatest chapter in Romans. So this is really important. Because if we were about to play a soundtrack of this moment on Romans 8, we'd be playing Rocky. And if we weren't, if we were if we were sure that they wouldn't turn off our social media stream, we would be playing it right now. Throughout Romans 7. Paul laments about how much he struggled with sin, and he ends the chapter saying this Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. In a sense, Paul's been leading up in Romans 7, basically saying this I'm grateful God delivers me, but since I continue to struggle so much with sin, how much condemnation can I expect to experience? And his answer in Romans 8 1 is Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, why is it therefore? Well, it links back to Romans 5 where he says, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And there's, I don't know if there's a lot of meaning in it, but that's one of my favorite verses. It's like, how real can the Bible get? Nobody's going to die for a self-righteous person, but we will die for a good person. He's honest, right? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at our worst, God was at his best. His love is unconditional. It's not conditioned by what we do or don't do. God loves perfectly. And we need to let that idea begin to condition our hearts and our minds and the way we live with no condemnation. See, the English word there that's translated no doesn't give the forcefulness of the Greek. Paul is actually saying there is now absolutely no more condemnation. It is gone. It's not waiting around the corner to pounce on you if you're not careful. No means it no longer exists. Condemnation is destroyed for those who are in Christ Jesus. This word condemnation is actually a legal term meaning there was a charge held against you for which you were guilty and you owed that debt. You are condemned to repay that debt. However, for those who are in Christ Jesus, that debt no longer exists. It's been paid in full. No condemnation applies to past, present, and future sins. Now, many of us can that our past is taken care of but when we think of the present and the future sins we re-condemn ourselves over them but that's not what Paul is telling us we are not condemned if we are in Christ Jesus there is, say it with me no condemnation because how many of our sins had you committed when Jesus died the answer is zero, right? none, we weren't even around He paid for them all in advance. That means Jesus has already atoned for your sins that you have not even done yet. Jesus' death wiped out condemnation for your future as long as you accept his gift and become a follower of Jesus. That's the only condition. Understanding this kind of unconditional love, I think, changes us. There is nothing we can do that He hasn't seen and that His blood has not already covered and paid the price for. I think recognizing that allows us to push past the embarrassment when we sin again and when we feel bad about what we've done and allow us to look more openly at our issues from a place of security within His love. There is no condemnation for us. So, how can we walk this out more fully? I mean, I think it helps us to have a clearer idea of condemnation versus conviction and what that looks like because I think think most of us spend a lot of time wasting a lot of energy in life on false guilt. We are not to live in condemnation. Yet I think we often pick up condemnation from three different sources. The first one is ourselves. We pick it up from ourselves. We look at our sin and think, I am horrible. And I can't forgive myself. I've done this a thousand times, even though I've said I'm not going to do it. And it may sound religious or even noble or somehow pennant for us to say, well, we can't forgive ourselves. And yet, when we say that, what are we really saying? If we've asked God for forgiveness and then say, I can't forgive myself, we're kind of saying that what you did on the cross really, it just wasn't enough. I have to do a little more because my sin is just too much. I have to pay God back and make things right before I can be okay. See, when we have this mindset, we may find ourselves playing our mistakes and our sin over and over and over again in our head. So I know some people who really go to the place of guilt really quickly. Their conscience is really sensitive. One of our kids had this really kind of sensitivity. I remember her seven-year-old self coming to us in our room late at night just sobbing because she had felt bad about something she had done Wendy and I were bracing ourselves what could this horrific thing be and then she finally through the tears got it out and she said there have been a few times I didn't brush my teeth before bed when you told me to do it and she burst into more tears feeling so horrible we're like that's it that's all you got Some of you may struggle with feeling bad about anything, and then beating yourself up, and it's hard to let go. It may feel to you a little bit like Jill Price, who wrote a book called The Woman Who Can't Forget. She has a rare condition called hyperthymesia, which means she has continuous recall of every day of her life since she was around 14 years old. Studies actually show that most of us only remember about 3% of our life events, We have some events that kind of, you know, uh, are stamped on our memory every year that we can't forget. Some of them good, some of them bad. But Jill Price remembers everything. She remembers the final final episode of MASH that was aired on February 28, 1963. And she remembers it was a rainy day and her windshield wipers were not working. And she shares, imagine being able to remember every fight you ever had with a friend. Every time someone let you down. All the stupid mistakes you've ever made, the meanest, most harmful, harmful, things you've ever said to people, and those that they said to you, and then imagine not, not uh, then imagine not to begin able to be able to push them out of your mind, no matter what you try. For Jill, the emotions she had at the time are the same intensity that she re-experiences them at in this moment. And she said, as I grew up, more and more memories were being stored in my brain. More and more of them flashed through my mind in an endless barrage, and I became a prisoner to my memory. So most of us don't have that kind of memory. Thank God. Most of us have a few memories that stay with us, consciously or subconsciously. The things that keep us frustrated, keep us disappointed with ourselves, keep us feeling like we're never going to measure up. That We've tried to let go of, forgive, but the ties are just not severed. And we live with a cloud of condemnation that we can't seem to get over. Whenever that memory comes up, you find yourself wanting to curse or hit the steering wheel or whatever it is. This is the power of Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Second way is condemnation can come from others as well. We've done something in our past and then someone brings it up and throws it in our face, sometimes in jest, sometimes in anger or frustration. We see it in family a lot, don't we? Do you remember the last time you got together with a family and, and your siblings reminded of you when you did a stupid, embarrassing thing and they caused you to relive it? Thanks so much, right? This is something you've repented for. This is something that doesn't define who you are today anymore. You are a new creation, but others don't let you forget. We may not want to bring condemnation, but it's hard to not do so in close relationships, especially in marriage. We may bring up past failures as a way way to win arguments. Remember when you did blank... And then we find ourselves throwing everything, every mistake they've ever done into the kitchen sink of the fight just to prove how wrong they are and how right we are. But God would say if someone has repented, we don't keep throwing it in their face. We give grace, not condemnation. The third condemnation may come to us through Satan. The Bible's really clear. Revelation 12 describes Satan as the accuser of the brothers and the sisters. Satan wants us to think we are condemned. He doesn't have to tell us the truth. Satan is known as the father of lies. He just needs us to believe his lies. So think about it this way. Wendy and I have been married 35 years this month. She has always been faithful to me. Yet if I didn't believe that truth and if I believed a lie it would greatly damage our relationship. Condemnation works through lies. Satan will tell you lies and reinforce lies in order to separate you from God and from others. The difference between conviction and condemnation is conviction brings hope. Condemnation brings hopelessness conviction comes from god we feel bad but drawn to god to confess our sins condemnation comes from satan and brings death and unrelenting shame the holy spirit loves us so much that he's not going to let us do things that will hurt us or could eventually kill us or hurt others sin brings death into our lives The Holy Spirit convicts us until we confess so that we can move forward in our relationship with God and others in a healthier way. Now, Condemnation sometimes feels similar, but the difference is condemnation makes us feel guilty over already confessed, already forgiven sin. Conviction is a good thing. It produces godly sorrow. It helps us want to repent and want to make changes. Condemnation makes you feel like you are condemned. You deserve to be thrown away as garbage. Satan tries to remind you of every wrong you've ever done over and over and over and over again. Because if he can get you to live in the past guilt, then you won't live free and you won't make the difference and experience all God wants you to experience in the now. You'll remain constantly self-focused. See, condemnation leads you to believe you will never change. You will always be blank. You will always be a failure, always a mistake, always stupid, always not smart enough, always not hard of working enough, whatever it is. Conviction, though, is specific. The Holy Spirit focuses on helping you know what you did wrong specifically. God will not tell you you are a failure. That is not the way He talks. Because you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You may have made mistakes, but you are not a failure because Jesus is not a failure. Condemnation, rather than being specific, condemnation is general. You, yourself, as a person, are a mistake and bad. and You don't know how to make that right. There's no way to make that right. Having a wife who teaches psychology, I've become really aware of, Pavlov's experiment with the dogs and drool, remember that? It's, uh, dogs naturally salivate to food. So Pavlov discovered that when you pair a stimulus like a bell with food, the dog will eventually start to salivate from the condition, conditioned stimulus, the bell, even when the food is not present. So much of our behavior in life is either consciously or subconsciously conditioned. I mean, think about it. Certain smells remind you of an experience. I can't eat or smell grapefruit without thinking about my grandfather who served it to me every breakfast we ever were together at. As kids, we're not fearful of needles until we get stuck with a shot and then we're determined never go back to the doctor again, right? It conditioned us. As mentioned above, conditioning happens in our relationship with God as well. So here's the big question for the day. Are you being conditioned by the love of God, or by the accuser and the father of lies. See, while we were at our worst, God was at his best. His love is unconditional. It is not conditioned by what we do or don't do. God loves us perfectly, And we need to let that love condition us in our thinking, in our feeling, in our attitudes, in our decisions, in every part of ourselves. Worship team, come on back up. As we close, let's take a glimpse of how Jesus' love conditioned just one person, Peter. Remember when Peter denied Jesus three times? Jesus predicted before the rooster would crow three times, Peter was going to betray him, and he does. One of the eyewitness accounts notes that at the third betrayal, Jesus looks straight at Peter, and made eye contact with him. Now, but it wasn't a look of condemnation. Rather, Jesus was saying, I know. I love you. I believe in you. We're going to get past this, and you're going to do incredible things for the kingdom. Just keep looking at me. Catch my eye. Jesus died and was resurrected, and Peter heard the rooster crow every morning for days, reminding him every morning of his betrayal. A reminder that was conditioning him every morning of the greatest mistake he'd ever made. And when Jesus needed him most, Peter failed. And every time a rooster crowed, he remembered that. Peter himself later said, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised he didn't say the devil prowls around like a, a crowing rooster reminding you of your worst failure. See, he was conditioned to remember his sins. But then we see in John 21, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing, which could be his way of saying, Well, I can't be a disciple anymore. I failed too much, so I'm going to go back to my old job fishing. It's early in the morning and Jesus shows up and Peter sees him and and runs to him and Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you love me? Yes, Peter replies each and every time. And Jesus says, Feed my sheep. Jesus reconditions Peter's three denials with three times of saying, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus was communicating to him, I am not giving up on you. I believe in you. We are in this together. You denied me, but I love you. I want you to remember from this day forward, whenever you hear a rooster crow, I want it to remind you of the mercies that are new every single morning. See, the accuser wants to condition you with shame. But Jesus wants to recondition you with his love and his grace. Here's kind of a simple formula way of looking at it. Sin minus grace equals shame. Sin plus grace equals gratitude. How do we walk this out this week? Well, here's a question. Where have you experienced the Holy Spirit's conviction lately, and how are you responding and pressing into that love that God is bringing your way? Where have you experienced condemnation from yourself or others or Satan? And how are you pushing that aside and instead choosing to see Jesus differently? And how can you be reconditioned to experience more of God's grace and love? How in the face of your sin, of your difficulties that you are going to face this week, that you are facing this week, can you turn toward God's grace and love with gratitude and warmth, knowing he's pushing his direction towards you and wanting you? Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we know that we've all sinned against You. We know and we're so grateful that when we confess our sins that You forgive us and that You come to us and You invite us into relationship with You. And Lord, we're just so grateful that there is no condemnation, none whatsoever. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would come to each and every one of us Interrupt our thoughts of condemnation and turn them into freedom. Turn them into receiving your love and your forgiveness where forgiveness, where we still need to repent. And would you help us put away the condemnation from our lives? Would you help us as friends, as brothers, as sisters, as parents, as grandparents? To help others put away condemnation in their lives, Lord, so that we can walk in the fullness of your love and the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we turn our hearts to you through this song, would you receive our worship, and we welcome your Holy Spirit coming to us even in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.